Hello, and welcome to the Jacobite Podcast, Episode 7, Ireland. Last episode, we finished off with the events in Scotland and the first major Jacobite War, covering the events from 1689 to 1692, with the violent events at Glencoe at the finish. As mentioned last week, we will now be taking a step backwards and picking up the story in Ireland. In 1688, the Kingdom of Ireland was poised as the rest of the country for possible action by William, Prince of Orange. King James's man in Dublin was Richard Talbot, the Earl of Tyrconnell. Tyrconnell was older than the King, but had been close to him and was known as a bombastic and ruthless operator. In November of 1688, James was writing to Tyrconnell in Dublin to advise him of the threat to the regime from William of Orange and his Dutch forces. This threat, as previously discussed, seemed to be an issue that everybody was aware of except James. Tyrconnell recognised the threat that a Dutch invasion could pose to the three kingdoms. He called the Irish Privy Council to assemble and requested the raising of troops to protect Irish territory, as most of the experienced Irish regiments had been ordered across to England to help try and keep James in power and keep the rebellion under control. James, however, wrote in November to order a further defence of Ireland, lamenting to his Irish viceroy that England was lost. James also took this time to disband the army, mainly to prevent its getting into William's hands, but this left many regiments from Ireland wandering around England, desperately trying to get home. Following mass panic at Irish Catholic troops and their rumoured murderous intent, rumours born of sectarian strife and not a little racism, some Irish soldiers were rounded up and forced into an internment camp on the Isle of Wight. This left the Irish low on men, supplies, and with their king prepared to head into exile, with little funding or command left to them. They were, to all intents and purposes, alone. Possibly sensing the change in mood, and sensing perhaps with a Protestant ascendancy in England, their time to act was now, a group of Protestants, mainly from the majority province of Ulster, laid plans to remove Tyrconnell from power and detain him. The rebels would then seize Dublin Castle, and convene a new Protestant administration designed to replace and remove the majority Catholic rulers that had flourished under James II. The plotters felt truly emboldened by William of Orange's landing in the southwest of England in 1688 and began their gathering of weapons for this coup. The only thing that stopped this attempt at armed insurrection was the intervention of William Stuart, the Lord Mountjoy. Mountjoy was not only a Protestant noble, but he was one of the few ranking Protestant officers still within Irish armed forces who'd survived the attempted purges of non-Catholic officers. The respect in which he was held in Ulster may have averted a direct rebellion, but the unrest would continue. Defence associations began to spring up, comprising of bands of armed Protestant militias, who, fearing repeats of the rebellion of 1641 and the slaughter of civilians by militants, decided to take up arms to defend themselves. They formed a Council of Union, appointed the Earl of Mount Alexander their commander, and appealed directly to William of Orange for assistance. To say Tyrconnell was livid by these developments is probably an understatement. He railed against these troop gatherings and began prescribing the association meetings, threatening imprisonment to those caught attending. But he was at least politically savvy enough to realise that he wasn't going to be able to just threaten people, and assured them all on December 7th there would be no repeats of 1641, and they had nothing to fear while simultaneously raising and preparing around 40,000 troops to defend Ireland. Surprisingly for all involved, events from a small town called Comba set in motion a chain of events nobody had anticipated. On December 3rd, 1688, 
a message was found in Comba telling of a planned action against Protestants to be commenced December 9th. This action will be swift, merciless, and result in the Protestant population of Ireland being slaughtered. Now, as it happened, it's important to note at this point, it was a complete forgery. But as often happens, the lie had got halfway around the country before the truth had even got out the door. Thousands of copies were circulating, terrifying Ulster Protestants, including those in the city of Derry. Derry, or Londonderry, depending on your use of its official name or the colloquial non-unionist affiliated name, is a city on the River Foyle that lies within the county of Ulster. In modern times, it's within the country of Northern Ireland, but is close to the border with the Republic of Ireland. But given that this isn't going to happen for about another 230 years for our purposes, it's going to remain in Ulster. Derry was a city that, to all intents and purposes, was defended like a fortress. Its city walls were roughly 20 feet high and 12 feet thick, with cannons lining the walls. News of this horrifying letter reached Derry just as Mountjoy's Protestant troops were being withdrawn to Dublin to be replaced by Catholic troops serving under the Earl of Antrim. For some of the inhabitants of Derry, the timing of this was a little too close to comfort to the plan outlaid in this horrendous letter. The story goes that on December 7th, 1688, whilst the town was holding a crisis meeting to decide what to do, some apprentice boys in the town ran down to the gates nearest the River Foyle crossing, raised the drawbridge and locked the city gates in the face of Antrim's troops. An ultimatum was issued, spurred on by the rowdy 13 teenage boys. Retreat from Derry, or be fired upon. Antrim's men were left completely confused and perplexed, but they didn't wish to be shot, so they pulled back and set up camp outside the town, awaiting any dispatch informing them as to what the heck they were supposed to be doing next. Meanwhile, the citizens of Derry were assembled by the city officials for another crisis meeting. The officials of the town were absolutely terrified there'd be reprisals for this act of defiance, and pleaded they'd be allowed to open the gates to admit the troops to Derry. But the citizens of Derry, numbering around 10,000, were emboldened by their action and emphatically refused, later terrifying the younger inexperienced troops of Antrim by firing cannons from the city walls, which they claimed to fire to celebrate the defection to the army of William of Princess Anne's husband, George of Denmark. The citizens refused to negotiate with Antrim, instead sending a message direct to Dublin, stating that whilst they were loyal subjects of the king, they would not accept a Catholic militia garrisoned within the town. Now, to say this annoyed Tyrconnell in Dublin would have been a massive understatement. He was absolutely enraged, and ordered Lord Mountjoy to return to Derry and neutralise the rebellion. Rather than go in by force, however, Mountjoy decided to negotiate a truce and pacify the populace. He managed to negotiate pardons for the ringleaders, the vigilante association meetings were also pardoned, and assurances that only Protestant soldiers would be based in Derry, and that Mountjoy's own pick of officer, Lieutenant Colonel Robert Lundy, was given the keys to the city gates and named as military governor. Tyrconnell signed off on the deal, but he would never forget this defiance against him, and would swear vengeance against Derry and Mountjoy. Towards the end of December, a letter arrived in London from an Irish Privy Council member by the name of John Keating. He was writing to a friend of his by the name of John Temple. Keating was giving his friend in the letter an account of the current state of Ireland. The country he describes is one in dual states of chaos and fear. Catholic subjects feared that William and his army would invade Ireland and subjugate the group as a whole. Protestant citizens, meanwhile, feared a repeat of the massacres of the 1641 rebellion. Protestant civilians had fled Catholic areas, seizing caches of arms and attempting to control different regions, as we'd seen in Derry. 
Catholics, meanwhile, began enlisting in the Irish army to defend Ireland and its Catholic King James against the London coup d'etat. Keating reports that Tyrconnell is wandering around in a state of despondency, desperate to avoid struggle, and he was in fact keen to consider terms by which he may peaceably hand over Ireland to William in exchange for tolerance and mercy. Now, in all likelihood, this was probably a calculated message by Tyrconnell and some form of back-channel diplomacy intended for William of Orange. John Temple was the former ambassador to the court of William of Orange in the Netherlands, and he probably would have still been able to communicate in high levels with the new administration to negotiate such a truce. Following these overtures, Lord Mountjoy was chosen in January 1689 to travel to France to speak with King James to negotiate his blessing to submit to William until James was in a position to reclaim his throne, similar to what we saw the Scottish Jacobite clan chiefs do with regards to taking the oath of allegiance after negotiating the treaty in Ochalada. Mountjoy was accompanied on this mission by Stephen Rice, the Irish exchequer and a member of the judiciary picked by Tyrconnell for the mission. Once both these men landed in France, however, the real reason for Rice joining the mission was evident. Unbeknownst to Mountjoy, Rice held letters intended in the eyes of King Louis XIV, monarch of France and King James's cousin. These letters called for the immediate arrest and detention of Mountjoy by the French, who duly complied. Mountjoy would spend the next three years locked in the Bastille. With one Machiavellian stroke, Tyrconnell had shown that not only was he determined to defend Ireland from forces hostile to James, and he neutralised a potential insurrection within his country, but he also displayed that he would ruthlessly remove a rival to his power base and take vengeance for what happened in Derry. Once this was discovered in the Protestant areas of Ireland, there was uproar. He may have permanently earned himself the nickname Lying Dick Talbot, but Tyrconnell had proved that he, and he alone, held control in Ireland. Following his disposal of Mountjoy, Stephen Rice continued on to Saint-Germain-en-Laye, the palace within which the King, James II and VII, held his court in exile. James himself had fallen into a state of despair and despondency. Bereft and without a kingdom, James constantly wrote pleas abroad to other major Catholic powers, including Spain, the Holy Roman Empire, and the Papal States, within which resided the head of the Catholic faith and God's man on earth, the Pope. All of these pleas were either ignored, snubbed, or replied to with vague platitudes and professions of support, but little in the way of arms, money, or troops. James slowly began to realise at this point in his life, his best shot at regaining his throne remained with sticking by France. Aside from cousin Louis, he and his Jacobite supporters were alone. Tyrconnell wrote often to James in France requesting aid for his Irish military forces and received replies from James that he'd have to suffice without funds and have only 8,000 muskets be an acceptable amount for the 40,000 troops he'd raised. James wrote that in the summer Louis was potentially planning an offensive against William and the Netherlands to relieve pressure on Ireland. Maybe. As a Jacobite supporting your king, you could have been forgiven for thinking that perhaps James had given up. He was quite happy to leave the day-to-day -day running of his court at that point to men like John Drummond, the Earl of Melfort, an ambitious 40-year-old Scotsman who'd followed James and converted to Catholicism. Whilst all of this was going on, back in England, the members of Parliament with interests and land holdings in Ireland were petitioning the now King William III to act in settling the situation in Ireland and safeguard their interests. William appeared quite vague on the matter and said only that he would take care of Ireland in the future. Apart from listing all the Protestants who'd been removed from post by Tyrconnell, Ireland was very much on the back burner for him. He was far more preoccupied with making sure the parliamentary convention settled the crown of England upon his head, so in his words he could focus the preservation of Holland against the threats of France. 
William's busy work schedule of solely spending three days a week dealing with correspondence and refusing unannounced visitors was an issue for the lobbyists in Parliament, led at this point by the Earl of Clarendon, who was Tyrconnell's foe in this matter, given that he was lobbying on behalf of the Irish Protestant population. William was desperate for easy answers to problems, and so when John Keating's letter that Tyrconnell would be willing to consider terms for a peaceful handover of Ireland was presented to him, he was prepared to listen. William decided to try his own sailship diplomacy. This was at a crucial time. He was still demanding the English Parliament fund his invasion, but took a break from this to welcome his wife, Queen Mary, back to her homeland to take her throne and add another layer of legitimacy that her Stuart name could add to what was essentially his role as a foreign state actor in a coup against the sitting monarch. William was preparing to send an envoy to Ireland to negotiate Tyrconnell's possible truce. It was then decided that Major General Richard Hamilton would be the man to go. Hamilton had been an officer in James's Irish troops called to England to defend from William's invasion. Following James's flight, Hamilton had spent time languishing on the Isle of Wight until vouched for by John Temple, the younger nephew of the John Temple who'd received the letter of this possible surrender. With William's blessing, Hamilton set sail to negotiate with Tyrconnell in Dublin Castle. The plan hit a small snag, however, when Hamilton, his 11 officers and 140 troops, walked into a pub in the Dublin suburbs, ripped up their orders and toasted King James. Hamilton congratulated himself on a perfect ruse. The government in Westminster had been left red-faced and the Jacobites had scored a major morale boost with the addition of this experienced Irish officer to their ranks. This story, however, has a more tragic chapter. Following the defection of Hamilton, the younger John Temple's reputation was in tatters, having been the man who vouched for the Irishman to William. Distraught at the disgrace to his name, the young man wrote a letter to William apologising for his folly in giving aid to a traitor. Then young John Temple rowed a boat to the middle of the River Thames, jumped in the waters and drowned himself. If this was where you were writing a Hollywood screenplay for the start of the Williamite Wars in Ireland, this death would be cast as a tragic metaphor for when the hopes of peace talks between London and Dublin were snuffed out. War was going to be a certainty. The time for talking was over. On January 15th, 1689, a French fact-finding mission made its way to Ireland under the Marquis de Pointis. Pointis's aim was to assess the current state of readiness of Irish forces within the region and to see if it was viable that they could even pursue a campaign against William from within Ireland. Pointis also brought with him the latest correspondence for Tyrconnell from Saint-Germain and the court of James. One of these letters was a letter dictated from James by the Earl of Melfort, the Scottish Secretary of State in the Jacobite court, asking for updates on the current situation of the armed forces, government and people of Ireland. Tyrconnell was somewhat perturbed at this, as he'd been regularly writing to France with updates. However, it might well be that, given that who was writing the letter to James, it might have been the Earl of Melfort using his newfound position to obtain a briefing, or perhaps the King had forgotten or wasn't listening the first time. None of this is terribly clear, but Tyrconnell humoured the request with his own very frank and downbeat assessment. Despite raising nearly 40,000 men, Tyrconnell had no uniforms, next to no weapons, and the Exchequer of Ireland was pretty much bankrupt. The Irish nobility had taken to funding the preparations of this campaign out of their own pockets. Tyrconnell really f lobbied for Jacobite forces to be funded by French Livre, stating that shipments of arms and munitions were great, but money was vital. William was reportedly massing troops in England for an Irish invasion and had secured loans of £300,000, worth £76 million today, or roughly $100 million at current inflation rate. As diplomatically yet forcefully as possible, 
Tyrconnell demanded French funds to arm, equip, and most importantly, pay his men, as he argued that if he could not pay the men, they would take to looting and rioting from the populace, which ran the risk of depleting the island's already stretched supplies and possibly pushing Ireland as a whole into famine. As a method of enticing French to lend money, Tyrconnell proposed that the ports of Waterford and Galway be offered as collateral for the loans. To sign off the letter, Tyrconnell urged his king to return to Ireland, stating that the country would rally to their true king if he were to arrive, and that even the rebellious Ulster would capitulate or be defeated in a month. This report was sent to James in France, along with Pointis's assessment of the state of the French forces, which was sent to King Louis. Pointis concluded that the 40,000 troops raised by Tyrconnell, only 6,000 or so had any active concrete military experience. Their arms were mainly muskets of no or questionable quality, and those only armed around half the men, the rest of whom were armed with wooden clubs, pikes and some edge weapons. Pointis' assessment of their major strength was their resolve to fight and willingness to train, which gave him the idea of a theory. He believed that the Irish troops could, in an absolute best-case scenario, defeat the forces of William, liberate Ireland, and then cross the sea and rally the English and Scots to rise up and defeat William, restoring James to the throne and adding another ally to France's side against the Dutch. Even if that dream scenario didn't even remotely happen, Pointis theorised that the Irish forces could slowly wear down William and his army and draw both men and resources away from the continent, which would further French interests in the campaign against the Dutch. An Irish proxy war would therefore appear to be ideal for the French, but there was one fly in the ointment to their plan, and unbelievably, it was James Stuart. The Marquis de Louvois, the French war minister, was adamant of the thought that James's heart was no longer in the fight, and this Irish venture would divert troops from the continent. He lobbied instead for sending what would be the French B-team, not keen to lose focus on the Dutch. His naval counterpart, the Marquis de Senelay, disagreed. To Senelay, this presented the ideal opportunity for a revamped expanded French navy to prove its capabilities and dominance over the Royal Navy, as well as support the Irish and drain resources from William, England and the Netherlands and sap the morale of their troops. Louis found this theory persuasive, so the French made war preparations in February. Louis and his ministers said James had resolved to go to Ireland, but in truth this was Louis and France's call. James had grown despondent and disheartened by his flight from England. I for one cannot shake the image of King James being kicked out of Saint-Germain the way one might try and remove someone sleeping on your sofa because you quite like your living room back. Jacobite supporters who'd followed their king into exile and were willing to fight were formed into regiments to be marched to Brest, the port from which they'd be shipped to Ireland. Shortly after this mobilisation, on February 15th, 1689, James boarded a coach in Saint-Germain bound for Brest and the rest of his troops. King Louis, his cousin, wished him well and said the best hope was they may never meet again as James would have reclaimed his throne. James at this point could be considered a broken man with next to no desire to leave his comfortable asylum in France, but at this point he had no say in the matter. France had decided upon a war and James, like it or not, was going to Ireland. Back in England and Ireland, war posturing on both sides began to intensify. After William was officially proclaimed King William III, he issued a declaration on February the 22nd, 1689, that if Ireland submitted to his rule and accepted him as their legitimate monarch, tolerance to the Catholics would be granted. Not only were his words ignored, but two days later on February 24th, Tyrconnell ordered the Irish army to seize all privately held arms and munitions in Dublin on the grounds it was to prevent them falling into the hands of William and his forces should they attempt an invasion. 
People weren't stupid, however. Even Tyr Connell was fairly brazen about his real target being to seize weapons from the Protestant population who may rise in revolt against the Irish regime to support William and his troop landing. This rule was eventually expanded to the whole nation of Ireland, save for the province of Ulster, which was out of Tyrconnell's control, as there were significant numbers of Protestants hostile to his rule. Despite this, his army still managed to seize thousands of pistols, muskets, pikes, and edged weapons. Further orders were issued to prevent currency leaving Ireland, and to provide for the billeting of soldiers in taverns, although again this mainly seemed to target the Protestant innkeepers. Failure to comply with these new regulations meant officers in the army began to harass those who defied them, further stirring resentment. On March 12, 1689, after several delaying storms and a rough voyage, James Stuart, King of England, Scotland and Ireland to his supporters, landed in the port of Kinsale in County Cork. Also with him came 22 ships and 200 officers and various functionaries of the Jacobite court in exile. Along with them were the French officers sent by King Louis to oversee the campaign. Waiting to join the campaign once they were shipped were 2,500 English, Irish and Scots Jacobite volunteers, as well as guns, ammunition and other supplies. James was joined as part of the royal party on this trip by his illegitimate sons, Henry Fitzjames, the 15-year-old Duke of Albemarle, and James Fitzjames, the 18-year-old Duke of Berwick. With the King and his sons came the Jacobite courtiers, the Earl of Melfort, Secretary of State for Scotland and soon to be declared Secretary of State for Ireland, Judge Stephen Rice, fresh from his trip helping to imprison Lord Mountjoy, and veteran soldiers such as John Wauchop and Patrick Sarsfield, who had vital combat experience for the Irish army. Let's not forget to mention, however, the driving force behind this and introduce the French officials. Firstly, there was the Marquis de Boisselot, an army veteran who had served in Luxembourg, the Marquis de Poussignan, and the Marquis de Maumont, who was himself a particular favourite and protégé of War Minister Louvois, and was to be his eyes and ears within the campaign. Then there was the Marshal of Ireland and senior military officer, Lieutenant General Conrad von Rosen, a minor noble from Livonia on the Baltic coast, who had initially signed up with the Swedish army, but was exiled from them for killing an officer in a duel. Using his family connections, he had obtained a commission in the French army where he had excelled. Now, von Rosen was the most senior French officer, and was nominally in charge, but there was one person who would be considered more important than him, Jean-Antoine de Melme, the Comte d'Avaux. D'Avaux was Louis's personal ambassador to James, and essentially the French king's eyes, ears, and when the occasion warranted it, his mouth. Should anyone in the Jacobite high command be in need of reminding who was backing this war, and whose interests should be advanced, D'Avaux was also in charge of the 500,000 livre war chest so he was a good man to know if you wanted to control the purse strings. When the Irish government heard their king had arrived, they sent Judge Thomas Nugent and Lieutenant General Justin McCarthy to meet James in Kinsale. McCarthy had to take a detour via Bandon, a Protestant town that had taken the lead from Derry's defiance, and lock the gates to the troops as they approached. Unlike Derry, however, they decided to negotiate the minute McCarthy turned up with enough cannons, munitions and troops to do some serious damage. Nicholas Brady, a Protestant minister, entered into negotiations with McCarthy. The terms agreed were the town hand over the ringleaders of the revolt, demolish its defensive walls and essentially put up bail money to the Irish government as assurance against a repeat of these shenanigans. McCarthy took the ringleaders with him to meet James to be subjected to the King's justice. James entered Cork on March 14th to a rapturous welcome from its citizens. In a magnanimous gesture, 
James pardoned McCarthy's band and rebel leader prisoners and arranged a meeting with the Protestant clergy, both actions no doubt taken to bolster James's tolerant credentials. James took up court in the Bishop's Palace in Cork and started to receive well-wishers and supporters and tried to convene a court. One person notable by his absence was the Earl of Tyrconnell, who had not currently attended the King because he had decided to finally settle his old score. With war on the horizon, Tyrconnell was going to take his revenge on Derry. Tyrconnell had given Major General Hamilton orders to crush the rebellions in Ulster. Hamilton took 2,500 men and moved north. The rebellions there were either marauding bands or had dug into cities awaiting what they saw as inevitable troop deployment against them. The Protestant nobility in Ulster had fully nailed their colours to the mast three days prior to James's arrival, having accepted commissions in William's army and his pledge of ships, cannons, arms and troops. Despite this, they were not necessarily a well-coordinated force, still bitterly angry at the loss of Lord Mountjoy. Hamilton was ordered to crush the forces of high treason by force of arms. Hamilton, spurred on by Tyrconnell's demand to crush the rebellion quickly, moved with incredible haste. Troops in Dromore, led by the rebel commander Arthur Rawdon, spotted Irish cavalry galloping towards town and jubilantly set an ambush to catch a scouting party. But that was their fatal mistake. It rapidly emerged to the people defending Dromore that in fact the entire force of Hamilton's army was converging on them. Pandemonium ensued, with Williamite forces dropping their muskets and fleeing in terror. Rowden went to Hillsborough and then on to the 4,000-strong Williamite garrison in Colrain. The head of the Ulster Defence Associations at the time, the Earl of Mount Alexander, didn't stop fleeing until he got in a boat and ended up in the Isle of Man. Hamilton had arrived to an almost deserted town, would eventually control Hillsborough and a massive swathe of Ulster, with Derry firmly in his sights. After loosing the dogs of war on Ulster, Tyrconnell made his way to Cork to greet King James, who warmly greeted the man as an old friend and warmly embraced him. At a dinner that evening, James proclaimed Tyrconnell a duke, the highest rank of nobility, and presented him with the French cordon bleu, the French ribbon for military valour. He then went on with James to Dublin, which they reached on the Christian holiday of Palm Sunday on March 24, 1689. The Catholics of Ireland greeted James as a returning angel with fates, dancing and demonstrations of loyalty. The cannons of Dublin Castle filed a salute, and soldiers lined the streets. The city nobles of Dublin met him, proclaimed him the freedom of the city, and the Protestant clergy swore loyalty to him. James was said to have been moved to tears. But he had little time to waste, and the next day set about convening the Irish Parliament and hearing briefings on Hamilton's progress through Ulster. Declarations of religious tolerance were issued, and it appeared that all would function smoothly. But a problem began to arise that would affect his and subsequent Jacobite movements, factionalism. Rather than compete for the overall good of advancing the Jacobite cause, separate factions seemed to advance their own particular causes. Tyrconnell, who'd moved close to Ambassador Davao and schmoozed the Scots Jacobites under the Earl of Melfort, was keen to advance the Irish cause and redress the balance of Irish land ownership. But the Earl of Melfort, recently adding Ireland to his portfolio, had absolutely no interest in the Irish and instead preferred to fight in Scotland. Davao was there to represent the French interests, aiming to spend as little as possible and push the aims of the French administration. These three competing ideologies would pull in separate directions to the detriment of a clear functional Jacobite strategy moving forward. This became clear in the correspondence between the advisers, Melfort advocating James take Tyrconnell's forces and land in Scotland with them to continue the fight there. Obviously Tyrconnell railed against this move, but so did French ambassador Davao, 
who not only felt it defeated the purpose of an Irish war, but also opposed it on financial grounds, as France had just paid to ship thousands of men to Ireland. They weren't going to pay to ship them on again. Melfort instead convinced James to visit the northern province of Ulster. Despite the objections from Tyrconnell and Davo about leaving the soldiers to mop up and then go, James had the honest belief he need only turn up and the rebels would surrender. Melfort may well have got a form of revenge against Tyrconnell when Tyrconnell was told not to go to Ulster but was instead sent on a mission by the French to disband regiments as the French had felt that 40,000 troops were too many and too expensive to coordinate. Melfort's message was clear from his interactions. He held the king's ear. France and England be damned. By March 20th, 1689, Derry had become the last stand of the rebel forces in Ulster. Slowly fulling with refugees, the city was putting on a brave face, reading public proclamations of defiance and gratefully receiving shipments of supplies from King William and Queen Mary in England. Ulster had turned into a wasteland as people fled. Supplies were destroyed or stolen by bandits, and its people fled to the relative safety of Derry. Omar, for example, was not even left with a window or doors. King James pressed on through the land, determined to appear to his men in Derry, despite Ambassador Davo calling for caution, fearing the king, and more likely Secretary Melfort, were too gung-ho. Davo had wrote to King Louis that others in the Jacobite court complained to him in private. Melfort was only interested in getting to Scotland. Tyrconnell would have agreed had he not been sent to disband troops, which he duly did, then returned to Dublin to nurse the wounds to his standing. He wrote often to Hamilton, who was within a stone's throw of Derry. The tension in Derry was reaching fever pitch, with attempts to quell it causing a temporary alliance of convenience between the Presbyterian and Anglican clergy. George Walker, an Anglican priest, tried to keep morale up. One man this didn't seem to work on was Robert Lundy, the military governor of Derry installed by Lord Mountjoy. He had taken charge, but was an officer in James's army initially, a fact his detractors often made hay with. Lundy was unwilling to have the same death-or-glory battle that Derry's citizens were stealing themselves for, and he had judiciously avoided reinforcing other towns in the province, evening abandoning the well-defended but small town of Enniskillen to its fate. Lundy had sworn allegiance to William in private initially, and when asked to do so in public, had bluntly refused. On April 14th, Jacobite forces were spotted on the banks of the River Foyle, the last natural barrier between the Jacobite army and Derry. Lundy had rallied all the men he could that could fight for their country and their religion against popery, as well as destroying the bridges and making barricades on the west bank of the Foyle. On Monday 15th, fighting began early in the morning. Hamilton, von Rosen, Poussignan and the Duke of Berwick took 350 troops and 600 cavalry and got into position so quickly that none of the 7,000 troops in Derry were ready yet but when they did defend in the areas, they were furious in their fighting, subjecting the Jacobites to withering musket fire. But Williamite forces were then pinned down by Jacobite fire and unable to reinforce their comrades. Rather than fight to a stalemate, Hamilton ordered his cavalry to ford the river. In an amazing manoeuvre, Jacobite cavalry dismounted, waded into the river and crossed the icy morning waters. Eventually joined by von Rosen and his forces, the emerging Jacobites caused chaos in the defence lines, a message to Lundy raced to tell him that the Jacobites had crossed the river and he immediately ordered a retreat. In the chaos and the lack of communication, a force of 7,000 was forced into a retreat back to Derry by barely a seventh of their number. Williamite forces broke, shouting, To Derry! Hamilton's troops threw timber on the bridge arches, thundered across them and chased the retreating forces for five miles. There was now nothing to stop the Jacobite forces from making their way to Derry 
and the last redoubt of Protestant rebellion in Ireland. Next time, we will look into the increasingly pressurised population centre of Derry and what happens when the Jacobites set it firmly in their crosshairs. We will also look at the Jacobites' Irish Parliament when it convenes and how William and Mary thought about that, desperate to avoid a war on two fronts. As always, I thank you all for listening and I look forward to your tuning in again next time.